It's Thursday, the 1st of June. In this episode of Going Viral, Professor Adrian Esterman will bring you up to speed on the fifth wave. He will discuss the confusion regarding boosters between WHO and Atagi and provide new information on antivirals. The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19, with leading voices from across Australia providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this COVID-19 update. Uh, My name is Professor Adrian Esterman, and for the last three and a half years, I've been studying, researching, and talking about COVID-19. Here's some disclosures. And here's what I'll be talking about, the current COVID situation, and that includes globally and in Australia, um, what's happening with vaccines, what's happening with antivirals, what's happening with long COVID, and some of my own thoughts on the current situation. Here's my take home messages. WHO has said that we are no longer in a public health emergency of international concern, but we are still in a pandemic. And so clearly it's still not over. And in fact, we're in our fifth Omicron wave at the moment. Um, There's plenty of long COVID around, and unfortunately, you're going to be seeing more and more patients with long COVID, and the big question is, what do we do with them? And finally, the government's no longer protecting vulnerable people, and GPs are in a good place to do that, so I'll be talking about protecting your vulnerable patients. Anyway, so here's the global situation, and what you immediately see is that Australia has one of the highest instance rates of COVID in the world, And in fact, in the Southern Hemisphere, only New Zealand is in a worse situation. Here's the situation in Australia as of last Friday. And we immediately see that the uh, highest instance in Australia is in Tasmania at 231 cases per 100,000 population. However, that's based on very small numbers. And for the largest states, the state in the uh, worst situation is my own state of South Australia with 226. However, this compares with 286, which is the current uh, incidence rate in New Zealand. So by by and large, Australia is in a better situation than New Zealand is. Now, this is probably the most complicated slide you're ever going to see, and certainly the most complicated one I've ever put up uh, in a presentation, so I apologise for it. Think of it as more of an abstract heart. But basically, it shows the development of the current sub-variants, Um, And as you know, we started off with the original Wuhan wild strain, then we went on to um, Greek letters. We had alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, etc. We run into a bit of a a block at at, uh, nu, because it's too much like the English word. The next one after that was xi, xi, which the WHO didn't want because it's the Chinese president's name. And then we hit, of course, Omicron, and we've been in Omicron ever since. And we've now got nearly 700 subvariants of Omicron. Now, here's what the current situation in Australia looks like. We've got three of the subvariants, XBB.1.9, XBB.1.6, and XBC dominating. Um, these are all recombinants. In other words, they're combinations of previous subvariants and even previous combinants. Um, and these are probably what are causing this latest fifth Omicron wave. So this is what it looks like in Australia as of last Friday. We know that at the um, end of uh, 2021, beginning of 2022, we had the big BA.1 first Omicron wave. And then in uh, March, April, we had the BA.2 wave um, with, a, with a double peak. 
Uh, the second peak was probably caused by Western Australia coming into the scene for the first time. And then uh, in mid-year, July, August, we had the BA.45 wave. Um, then in the end of the year, we had a much smaller wave caused by a mixture of subvariants. And finally now in sort of May, June of this year, we're in that fifth wave, which is caused by another mixture of subvariants. Now it does look extremely shallow, but I think that's an artifact because of the low testing numbers. In reality, it's much higher than that. Um, I'm sure all of you know what the REF stands for, the effective reproduction number. It's basically the uh, average number of people each um, infected in this case themselves infect. Uh, if it's greater than one, it means the epidemic is going up at an exponential rate. If it's equal to one, numbers are stable. And if it's less than one, the epidemic's going down at an exponential rate. Here's what the REF looks like. So you can see it tends to break one, or in fact it does break one every time there's been a major outbreak, and it's currently well above one now. So that's why we're in our fifth Omicron wave. We can see how severe things are by looking at hospital inpatients. And we see that at the moment, um, we've got um, close to 3,000 patients in hospital with COVID, and it's getting on to becoming close to what it was in the uh, end of year, December, January outbreak. This is why I'm saying that the very, very low shallow case numbers don't really reflect what's happening. We can see this in this next slide. So this is the percentage of diagnosed cases that end up in hospital. At the beginning of this year, it was about 3%, and now it's over 6%. Now, I don't think um, these new subvariants of Omicron are any more severe. This increase in percentage is almost certainly due to underreporting, uh, underdiagnosing. And it really shows that the actual number of cases is more than twice the diagnosed number. Here's weekly deaths for Australia. It looks very jagged because states often um, report historical data you know, in one go, so you suddenly get a big bulk of deaths coming through. But you can see at the moment, we're getting about 200 deaths a week in Australia. Now, a point worth noting is that this is 10 times the road traffic accident fatality rate, 10 times. Uh, we're forced to wear seatbelts uh, by law, yet we're doing nothing about COVID-19. It's a very, I think it's a bit of a disgrace, to be honest. Here's another interesting slide. I hope you can all see this, but it shows deaths from influenza uh, and deaths from COVID-19 by year. Now, the interesting thing is that the case fatality rate for COVID-19, at least for the Omicron version of COVID-19, is about the same as seasonal influenza. But because so many more people have been infected, we have huge numbers of COVID-19 deaths compared to influenza. So definitely you can't equate the two. This is the outbreaks in aged care homes. And at the moment, there's nearly 500 outbreaks in residential aged care facilities, nearly 500. Um, so things are pretty bad at the moment uh, in aged care. Um, in terms of, of vaccination, we've still only got about 70% of people with a booster shot, which is nowhere near high enough. Even worse, if we look at the time since each person had their last vaccination by age, we have 60% of people over 65 have, are not up to date with their vaccinations, 60%. Uh, if you take into account those who are recovering from COVID-19, it might be more close to 50%, but still it's a huge percentage of vulnerable people who aren't protected, and also explains why we're in such a dire strait in our residential aged care facilities. And for me, the big question is, why aren't we persuading 
elderly people and vulnerable people to get up to date in their vaccinations. I'm not seeing advertising on television, I'm not seeing advertising in social media, and we should, we should be doing a lot more to protect these people. And I'll come to that later in my final remarks. Now, WHO in March this year changed their priorities for vaccinations. And basically, they, they split people up into three groups. Highest priority for vaccination is older adults, um, people with significant comorbidities, uh, immunocompromised people, pregnant women, frontline health workers. And they should be getting a, a, a booster shot either six or 12 months after the last dose, dose depending on when they got there, uh, sorry, depending on um, individual circumstances. The medium group are healthy adults um, and children and adolescents with comorbidities, and they should get their primary series and first booster dose only, so they're not recommended to get subsequent boosters. Um, however, they are safe to have a subsequent booster um, if they want one. Um, I recently had a 50-year-old lady um, email me to say that uh, she was healthy. Uh, she was just about to travel to Germany. Uh, she had already had three booster shots, and she wasn't sure whether to get a fourth one or not. And I explained to her the WHO recommendations and I said, look, if it was me and I was traveling overseas, I would definitely get an extra booster shot because it really is a high risk thing traveling overseas. This is the low risk for priority for vaccination. Healthy children and adolescents, re really these, these um, don't need to get a vaccination at all because they rarely get very sick, although sometimes they do. The primary and booster doses are safe for these uh, people. And um, one of the reasons why it is good to have these people vaccinated is some children do get very sick. And secondly, they are often uh, transmitting this to their parents and grandparents. So I would encourage people to get their kids vaccinated. Let's have a look at the actual vaccines now. A recent report in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, found the bivalent BA45 vaccine used as a booster is nearly twice as effective as its monovalent equivalent. Uh, and here's the actual data itself. So you can see 62% effective compared to 33% for the monovalent booster. Um, and here's another one. This is on a preprint server, so uh, it uh, hasn't been peer reviewed yet. But nonetheless, what it's found is that the uh, BA45 bivalent is actually better than the BA.1 bivalent, but not by a huge amount. So it's marginally better and certainly worth recommending over the BA.1 bivalent vaccine. I'd like to just talk about vaccine safety because there's so much now in the, in, in the press, um, in, in social media and conspiracy theories about um, vaccine safety. So as you can see, there have been 138,000 adverse event reports out of 66 million doses. Um, most of these were for Pfizer, as you can see. And most of these uh, adverse event reports were for very minor things, um, headache, muscles and joint pain, uh, skin reactions at the site, fevers, chills, etc., which, which people recovered from after two or three days. Now I'd like to talk about vaccine deaths reported to the TGA as of 18th of May. There were 985 notifications of possible deaths. Now these are uh, notifications that hadn't yet been scrutinized by a panel to check whether they truly were likely to be related to the vaccine. And of those 985, only 14 were judged to be related to the COVID-19 vaccination and 13 of them for AstraZeneca. So uh, AstraZeneca, as you know, is no longer available in Australia. And since the beginning of this year, we've had no new vaccine related deaths and none of those deaths were in children. Now, a little bit about what's going to be happening uh, in future. 
Um, the WHO recommended that the next vaccine be a monovalent one with one or more of the with one of the new subvariants, one of the new recombinant subvariants. FDA are meeting this month, and they will almost certainly accept WHO's recommendation. And we are most likely to have um, one based on XBB.1, either 0.1.6 or 0.9.1, uh, uh, ready in America by about September, and potentially in Australia by the end of the year. So we're going to have monovalent is the next one. Um, the next thing is that um, we have several trials around the world of um, needleless vaccines. So we have patches and jet injectors. Um, Novavax are currently trailing a combined, trialing a combined COVID-19 influenza vaccine in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, there are several live attenuated uh, vaccines currently in use, mainly from China and India. A French company, Val Valneva, has also produced one which has been authorised for use in the UK. There are several clinical trials of uh, nasal and inhaled vaccines around the world, uh, mainly from India and, and China. Um, and there are many groups around the world developing, uh, at least trialling, pan-coronavirus vaccines. Uh, none of them are in, in uh, clinical trials at the moment, they're all preclinical, but nonetheless those are on the horizon. And interestingly, there's a phase two trial now of a pan-influenza vaccine, which is currently running in Australia. Now in terms of antivirals, a recent survey by HealthEd of 1,500 GPs um, found that over the week before, 31% had prescribed Paxlovid and 27% uh, Molnupiravir. So Molnupiravir is, is extremely well prescribed at the moment. Um, Paxlovid, of course, is the, the first line uh, antiviral drug. But of course, it does have issues in terms of drug-drug interactions and people with um, renal, renal issues or, or, or hepatic issues. Um, Recent research in the um, Annals of Internal Medicine found it reduced the risk of hospitalization or death from Omicron subvariants in older adults by 44%. So it's very, very effective, very, very effective. Um, I'm sure most of you have seen this now, and this recommendation is based on the Panoramic trial. Now, the Panoramic trial um, one of the issues with that is the mean age of patients in the panoramic trial is 56. And that is much younger than the sort of patient you see that would give molnupiravir to. This is a more recent data and it comes from a, a, a trial that's been reported in uh, the Journal of in Infection. And it's based on uh, 3,000 US veterans with COVID-19. Um, the average age was 74, which is much closer to what we would normally give molnupiravir to. Now, although in the article itself, the authors didn't directly do a head-to-head -head comparison of molnupiravir and Paxlovid, what it clearly shows is that both of the drugs do much better than a placebo, and Paxlovid is a bit better than molnupiravir, but it looks as though it's still worthwhile giving molnupiravir to those who can't have Paxlovid. Further, there is evidence that giving any antiviral reduces the chances of long COVID. Now, here's another interesting one, which I'm sure you're aware of, and that is that you have to give these antivirals quickly. When Paxlovid is given in the first five days, it's 80% effective against severe COVID. But if it's given in the first 24 hours um, 
after testing, it's 90% effective. So the sooner we can get this drug into people, the better. And of course, that's got implications for things like PCR testing and access to a GP. What's happening uh, in the future with antivirals? There are literally hundreds of clinical trials of new antivirals taking place at the moment. For example, there's an RCT of pegylated interferon lambda in Brazil and Canada that's just been published in the New England Journal of Medicine. A single subcutaneous dose of uh, pegylated um, interferon within seven days of onset, half the rate of hospitalization and ED visits compared to a placebo. So I would be very surprised if there wasn't at least one or two new antivirals available this year. I'd now like to talk about long COVID. WHO defines it as the continuation or development of new symptoms three months after the initial SARS-CoV-2 infection, with these symptoms lasting for at least two months and with no other explanation. A quick search in PubMed found over 3,000 articles about long COVID, with many patients experiencing dozens of symptoms across multiple organ systems. Now, current estimates are that between 5 and 10% of infected people, including those with uh, no symptoms, end up with long COVID. Now, this on the slide there is a recent overview from Nature. That's really worth a read, and it looks at risk factors, prevention, pathogenesis, and treatment options. Um, a recent uh, JAMA study of nearly 9,000 people who had recovered from COVID-19 found that symptoms tended to cluster in 12 groups. Here are the first six, and here are the next six. And some of these you might not have been aware of, like uh, erectile dysfunction and loss of libido. And here are some of the risk factors for long COVID. Um, female, older age, obesity, smoking, underlying medical conditions. But I would like to note that 30% uh, of people with long COVID have not had any underlying medical conditions. Uh, as for long COVID prevention, really and truly the only way to avoid having long COVID is not to get COVID in the first place. And those who don't get COVID are called Novids, and I'm a, a proud Novid. My own estimate is that about 10% of the Australian population have never had uh, COVID. An RCT of metformin given for two weeks within three days of diagnosis found a 42% reduction in long COVID. So that's a very interesting finding. Um, a systematic review of 41 articles found vaccination was associated with an overall 43% reduction in long COVID. Um, so vaccination it not only uh, helps keep you out of hospital, it also reduces your chances of long COVID, and yet that message is not given out there. And finally, a large trial of US veterans found that Paxlovid, given within five days of diagnosis, led to a 26% reduction in long COVID. And that's why I was suggesting earlier that one other reason for making sure patients get antivirals is it reduces their chance of long COVID. And finally, with respect to treatments, we really don't know very much. There are some trials underway, but it's really in its infancy. And much of the literature on treatments goes back to the um, ME, chronic fatigue syndrome literature. Now I'd like to just talk about the GP's perspective and also my perspective. And one of the things that I'm worried about is the fact that um, states and territories are becoming more and more difficult to try and get information from. And in fact, journals who I speak to tell me that you almost need a freedom of information request to get anything out of the state and territory governments. I mean, during the first two years of, of the um, pandemic, 
um, state and territory governments had daily updates on case numbers, hospitalizations, deaths. And then last year it moved to weekly updates. And now uh, Queensland Health have now not even doing that. All they're doing is giving their data to the Commonwealth and not actually reporting weekly data. And of course this makes it extremely difficult to, to actually keep up to date with what's happening. And people like me spend ages trying to locate and source data now because it's so difficult to get out of the state and territory governments. And you've got to think, why are they doing this? All it's really doing is, is sort of giving ammunition to the conspiracy theorists. So that's my own pet beef at the moment. Uh, in terms of GPs, um, you have um, few issues. One of them is, is, are you going to give molnupiravir to your patients? Because the recommendation at the moment is not but I'm suggesting that it might be more like a maybe. Um, I, I think for me, probably the biggest issue is we saw that only 40% of elderly people are up to date with their, with their booster shots, only 40%. Uh, the government is doing nothing about it. Um, apart from that, there's the issue of, you know, if they do wake up with some flu-y type symptoms on, on a Sunday, for example, how are they going to access a GP to actually get a test because without a test they can't get antivirals? So there are many issues there for GPs. How do you actually let your patients know what to do? Because don't forget, people who are over 65 usually have very low health literacy. So what I'm suggesting is that GPs could be proactive. They could write to all of their vulnerable patients and explain to them what to do if they have symptoms, um, what they do next, uh, how do they test themselves? Um, how do they actually get access to a GP for testing? Um, should they be taking antivirals? Antivirals, which ones they should be taking? And even things like they should be wearing a face mask when they go out and what type of face mask to use and how to wear it. All of these things could be given out in a simple letter to vulnerable patients from GPs, but I, I imagine that for most of you re, uh, listening to this podcast, it's simply not being done. And so I, I would ask you, please think about actually being proactive. So coming back to my take home messages, no, it's not over yet. We're in a fifth wave of Omicron at the moment. It's still going up. Hospitalizations are going up. Uh, our hospital system is creaking at the seams. You've probably got staff off sick. You're probably seeing a lot more patients with COVID. So no, it's not over, despite what the government says. Um, as I said to you before, we're getting up to 10% of people ending up with long COVID. You will be seeing more and more patients with long COVID. And the question is what do you do with them? Because at the moment we have very few treatments and very little ways of diagnosing them. And finally, please, please, please protect your vulnerable patients because the government's not doing it. Thank you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click 
on self-claim.